Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we talked about the earliest contacts between the Celtic peoples of the British Isles and Republican Rome, following their relationship through Roman conquest, the Boudican Rebellion, and a failure to completely pacify the North. This time, we'll pick up with Rome trying to stabilize what they see as a region that should be fairly straightforward to govern. Let's begin. Okay, we're here on HI101. Phil Danny. Hey. And we've been talking about uh, the Romans in Britain. Yeah, we have. Which has been going super well, and no one's ever angry at anybody. No, it's fine. Everything is going good. It's going to keep going well forever. Yeah. Nothing's ever going to change. Rome is still in control of England uh-huh. right now, right? I think so. I'm yeah. pretty sure that's how that works. I'm pretty sure. We keep talking about Romanization. What's Romanization? What does that mean <laughs> as a term? Just like I was just like, I mean, like I understand the idea of like making people more Roman, mm-hmm. but like. But like functionally, what does that mean for Rome or for for Britain? I should say, this this is a rhetorical question. I'm about to tell you about <laughs> I'm it. Like, I wasn't expecting I'm like, you to answer. Adam, me. like I can answer this at a very high level, but come on, man, this is what you're here for. <laughs> <laughs> this is your job. I wasn't prepared for this. It's like I I, I learned this at one point. I get the idea, yeah. and then I promptly forgot almost everything about it. There's a bit of a gap between when we last talked about with the the Boudican revolts and yeah. around 60 CE and the Agricola's campaigns up into scotland wrapping up around 84 ce there's gonna be a bit of a gap between that and the next time that anything really happens in britain that the romans cared about so i figured this is probably a good time to just kind of stick this in here biggest thing was infrastructure romans were real good at infrastructure they're not great at things like math or philosophy or <laughs> you know literature city building that oh city building they have that down yep there are two main types of cities if you are in a Roman province, the bigger cities are actually laid out on a grid and there's a, like a, a set pattern, basically like a, a plan Sure. that more or less, if you're in a bigger city in the Roman empire and you got scooped up and taken 5,000 miles away and put in another Roman city, you put, you could probably find your way around more or less perfectly. That's similar, eh? Were there any efforts efforts to uh, rebuild London now? Yeah, of course. Yeah. It was it was almost being, immediate. Yeah, it was being rebuilt as soon as the Boudican Rebellion was put down. It it's in a really good spot just for trade. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's right on the Thames River. Uh, it's fairly central, and it's got you know easy access both to the north via you know the roads that are being built, but also to the coast. So it's it's kind of it, it, it's a good 
intersection. Sure. Um, and frankly, the Romans were kind of surprised that there wasn't already a fairly big city there because that's where they would put a city. <laughs> Even more standardized, actually, than cities were the military barracks. Mm -hmm. Those were, there was one plan. Like any semi-permanent or permanent uh, military outpost was constructed on exactly the same plan. So no matter where a legion was moved around to, no problems. There was no issue of refamiliarizing yourself with the setup. You're just immediately ready to be here. You've been here every single time you've walked onto a military base. It's the exact same thing, which is helpful for, you know, just convenience and familiarity but also for defense because if uh you know if an enemy force ever overran you you need to know your way around in order to properly defend it mm-hmm. and if you've never been at a fort before and you're like okay let's go and you find yourself in like a storage closet <laughs> that doesn't help anybody <sighs> well might as well take a nap <laughs> yeah, i'm gonna hang out here <laughs> tell my commander you saw me on the battlefield <laughs> who are you talking to <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> The guy who decided not to take a nap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The smaller cities weren't built on a plan. They kind of grew more organically, but they were small enough that it wasn't a big deal. Yeah. But yeah, infrastructure was the main thing. They were getting clean water to people via aqueduct systems, which were fairly revolutionary at this point in time. Remember that the, the Britons were essentially an Iron Age society before the Romans got there. So, you know, most of their technology is fairly rudimentary. I... I I'm sure they knew how to dig wells, but not very deep ones. Yeah. And a big preventer of disease is essentially separating your drinking water from your wastewater, yep. which sounds like it should be a super simple concept. Obvious, but it, hindsight. <laughs> yeah. Again, hindsight is twenty twenty. Up until about 150 years ago, people were like, oh, really? Yeah, maybe that makes sense, I guess. You're going to be prissy about it. Jeez, I mean, I just want something to drink. (laughs) Water's water. Come on, man. I I just got to take a dump. Get over it. I'm going to go. Yeah. So, I mean, mean, even today, there are parts of the world where this is an issue. Yeah. You know, in that case, less because of education and more because of just... Availability of resources. But that makes such a different difference on the health and well-being of the population. For sure. That... It seems like a small change. Made a huge change in Britain. Population Mm -hmm. starts going up quite a bit. Just the amount of opened trade routes. Because when the Romans build a road, they're mainly building it so it's easier to get their army around. I'll be straight with you. It's easier to march on a road than it is like... So I do it in civilization. Hills and valleys, right? Yeah. But the side benefit of that is that, you know, there aren't military forces marching on it all the time. Why not take your wagon? down the road to London and yeah. uh, trade your stuff there. And it's a lot easier going uh, over a road than, than it is over open fields, just the same as uh, as a march. So mm-hmm. it really stimulates trade, as well as, you know, the building of, of London as a, as a central place for trade in the island. All of a sudden, the, the economic stimulation is, is really, really valuable to the local population, as well as the availability of the entire continent as a place that you can trade to. You have people that are taking British goods and moving them to the continent and dispersing them from there, as well as the availability of goods from all over the emperor, the empire in London, mm-hmm. because people are trying to sell stuff from all over the empire to the Britons. Now, it looks like Britain was getting the better end of this deal. When people have done kind of a, an archaeological analysis, sure. it seems like there's more stuff going into Britain and more money going into Britain than out of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, good work, Britons. 
you did it. Yeah, you, you, you done good. That's you sw- not usually how it works when people are, you know, conquered and set up as some sort of colony. Yeah, you, you swindled them. But, I mean, the thing to remember is that these weren't, at this point, this was no longer about a a colony or an oppressed people. These people have been incorporated into the Roman Empire. So this isn't really hurting anyone. No one minds that. That's just how it is. People start being given Roman citizenship as we go along as well, which is a really big deal in the ancient world. If you can become a Roman citizen, Mm -hmm. you have it made because that means, well, a number of things. The biggest things are included in something called the Latin Rite, which, well, let's, let's talk about that first. The Latin Rite was kind of an intermediary step from a non-citizen to a citizen. The Latin Rite meant that People living in a Roman province had a few fundamental inalienable rights. Specifically, like the big three are the right to own property in any Latin city or province, as well as enter legal contracts that were legally binding. So you could, if you had the money, buy land anywhere in the Roman Empire. You could also make a contract with anyone for anything. And as long as it was drawn up properly you could have it legally enforced by the the, the Roman courts. Mm-hmm. Big deal. Yeah. That's useful. A lot this of is a society where resources breaking contracts would be more like a like a kind of stabbing situation. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> now you can just go in front of a judge and make him do it. Yeah. You also had the right to marry any other occupant of a Latin city. Mm-hmm. Which is big in a couple of ways. Number one, you know, marriage brings along its own legal privileges right yeah uh number two that's a stepping stone to citizenship in and of itself because if, it, if you marry a citizen that bumps you up to citizenship right away so cool you can marry anyone from across the empire that is also a citizen or at least under the latin right the third one is the right to acquire citizenship of any other state simply by moving there and, and in this case not specifically roman citizenship but, right, but state you, citizenship yeah if you are a briton uh, if you want to become part of the the province of Spain, what would what would become Spain? Mm-hmm. All you need to do is move there and buy a house and land, and declare that as your permanent residence. And now you are a member of the province of Spain the way that you were a, mo- a member of the province of Britannia. So it gives you mobility throughout the entire empire. Nice, super valuable stuff. Sounds handy. If you were to become a full citizen, which is something that they started offering with like more and more frequency and by the second century they actually wiped out the latin right and made any eligible citizen born in the roman empire a citizen Mm -hmm. but to be a roman citizen means that you also have the right to participate in political life so you could theoretically be elected to public office and you have the right to vote for others that are running for public office you also if you are a citizen can serve in the military Everyone in the full military was uh, a Roman citizen at this point in time. If you weren't a citizen, you could join the auxiliary mm-hmm. or uh, military, which gives you, you have to serve for five years, but once you're done, you can become a citizen. So that's also an avenue to, to full citizenship. Sure. So what they're giving these people is like a way to become full active members of the society in in every aspect, which a lot of people really wanted. Yeah. There's a lot of benefits to becoming Roman. Now, Britannia was an imperial province. There were two types of provinces. Imperial provinces were provinces where 
there was a garrisoned military. There was a military presence all the time. Imperial provinces uh, are under the direct command of the emperor. Mm -hmm. Whereas a province like, uh, let's say, Cisalpine Gaul, so like the the area of like southern France, right, right by Italy, there's no real danger of anything happening there. Yeah. So they don't keep active military forces there. Those are under the purview of the Senate. Mm -hmm. So Britannia would always be an imperial province, not a senatorial province yep um but still a full province that doesn't make it less of a part of the empire it's just sort of a classification sure and beyond that romanization really just meant uh slow assimilation of the populace through uh from there through immigration from the continent you would get people from gaul or from Germ- germania moving to britannia to live mm-hmm. uh you had intermarriage with people from other parts of the uh, uh of the empire uh, you had people starting to speak kind of a mix of Latin and the the Celtic Britain language, mm-hmm. and which you you needed to participate in in public life, right? It would help. And uh, and really by by uh, about the second century, people in the south of Britain, for the most part, uh, look more or less like British uh, citizens. British uh, look more or less like Roman citizens anywhere else in the Roman Empire. Yeah, so it's definitely a mix of the carrot and the stick. They're, mm-hmm. they're definitely telling them that they need to join up, but they're offering them a lot of good reasons why they should as yeah. well. And it's as like I've being said a threatened times, at gunpoint to take this million dollars. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, kind of, yeah, a little bit, isn't it? Yeah, you might resent the gun, but it's like, I mean, get that out of my face. But yeah, give me the money. <laughs> sure, sure, you can give it up already. I'll, I'll take it. Um, and I mean, it's not quite that extreme, but yeah, absolutely. A lot of people had zero problems joining up. They were uh, often very grateful for the things that the Romans were bringing in. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's that's a little bit, anyways, of what life was looking like for these new Roman citizens, I suppose. And after Boudicca, things kind of just cruised along for a while until we get to the year uh, 105 CE. And there's an uprising by people that we know as the Picts. I've heard of them. The Picts are not, that's not what they called themselves. Yeah. This is is our whole uh, Native American analogy again. I've heard we don't know too much about them either. We really don't. Yeah. Uh, they're called the Picts because they would paint themselves blue before battle. And Pict comes from the same uh, Latin root that gives us the word like picture, picture, right? And so they were drawing on themselves, so they yep. called them the Picts. Yeah, and, and again, they're they're kind of sort of would end up becoming what we know as Scottish, but that also included some of the other Caledonian tribes, including the the Gales. Like, it would, but some of the Gales would also become Irish, and yep. like, it's this whole mishmash, right? Mixed heritage there, absolutely. And and it, it, once again, we have no real like solid record yeah. of who was who. But in any case, there's a Pictish uprising in the north, and it it's a bad one. There's there there are three Roman legions on the island at all times. And they go to deal with this this uprising, but like they're not they're not finishing it that quickly. Yeah, it keeps flaring up, and the problem is that once again this is asymmetrical warfare. So like, yeah, these people are using Iron Age technology. They don't want to become Romanized, but that means that they can't really meet the British, meet the Romans like in the field. Yeah, because they saw what happened to Boudicca. Yeah, like we're not gonna do that. That's only forty years, forty five years prior to this. 
that's they've got a long enough memory to know not to do that so they're hitting them in kind of fade tactics yeah and the romans are having a bit of a hard time putting this down right this goes on it goes on for a while really comes to a head around the year 117 between 117 and 121 it, it, it gets pretty bad in the north they send a guy who has a great name to deal with this his name his name is general quintus pompeius falco <laughs> what that's amazing they had some really great names in the roman <laughs> empire <laughs> General Quintus Pompeius Falco. And yeah, he suppressed that. I was just going to say, I bet he did it like a boss. Oh, did he? He took care of business. No problem. Part of the reason they sent in such a crack general was because our our good friend Emperor Hadrian Mm -hmm. has come to power. And he's decided to do something a little bit novel for Roman emperors at this point, which is that he's decided that he wants to see all the parts of his empire. Interesting. Yep. Yep. It's a big empire, right? Hmm? Pretty big empire. It's a very big empire. But I mean, one of the things I found for myself, at least learning about the Romans, is is they can move faster than you realize. I mean, Europe isn't that big. No, it's pretty small, Spe- generally speaking. We, we grew up in Canada. Yeah, Canada's, Canada's big. big. We've got... Europe is not. Kind of an inflated sense of how far yeah. something is before it looks far on a map. Yeah. Um, isn't europe like the same size as ontario i wouldn't know what it would look like to superimpose it exactly but i think they're similarly sized it's don't quote me on it i could be wrong it's approximate internet (laughs) yeah exactly it's it's approximate yeah well there's there's I, i wouldn't even know who to attribute this to but there's that probably misquoted saying that Americans think 100 years is a long time yeah and europeans think 100 miles is a long distance yeah you got kind of a similar thing going on here. One of the podcasts I listen to regularly is from a American production company. And okay. one of their main members is a British guy. Yeah. And they like always talk about the differences in transportation and distances sure. in North America versus Europe. And it's just crazy. Yeah. They're like, what do you mean you have to drive everywhere? We don't drive anywhere. Yeah. Like, what do you mean you don't drive anywhere? We drive everywhere. Yeah. No, I mean, I, you know, my parents have a cottage. It's four hours away. Yeah. I, during the summer, will regularly go up for a weekend. Yes. Which means that in a period of three days, I spend eight hours in a car and I barely think anything of it. Yeah. It's not a problem. (laughs) I uh, I get the impression that that's not something that's true for a lot of Europeans. Yeah. They'd be like, we we traveled for like an hour and got to some random new place. (laughs) I'm three countries over. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe four. I kind of lost track. I lost track. We went through so many countries. Yeah, no wonder they opened up all their passport systems. Yeah. What's that that region called? Sorry? There's a a region in uh, Europe where you just don't need one. Uh, I'll look it up. It's like free transit region or something like that. No, it's got a more European sounding name. <laughs> was that was that a little American for you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll, if you can't find it, I'll send it to you so you can put I, it in the notes. It won't be that hard to find. I'll look it up and I'll pop it in the notes. But these guys could get around fast enough. Yeah. It would take them a... It, it, this, this journey around the emperor, uh, empire is going to take him a couple of years for sure. But like, he also wants to see a bunch of stuff and like spend some time. And big um, empire, remember, remember. Well, Hadrian was an interesting dude in a lot of ways. Like, if you're going to pick an emperor that you don't know a whole lot about to read up on, yeah, go with Hadrian. He's considered one of the five good emperors, which was a series of like just like outstanding leaders. Uh, who, interestingly enough, none of them 
put a, a biological heir on the throne after them, which is uh, a theory as to why. Well, it's a theory as to why they did so well. Yeah, they I was going to say that based on merit rather than yeah, yeah. So yeah, he, he was he was particularly good at ruling. He was, but he also oversaw one of the largest periods of, of peace in in this point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also what they would call very very Greek. He wanted to look at the empire as being extremely cosmopolitan. So mm-hmm. like, yes, we're all from different areas of the empire, but we're all Roman citizens, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fine. But that's a weird attitude for a Roman to take. Sure. Roman emperors tended to be a little bit more absolute about things like that and a little bit more uh, xenophobic, maybe. A little bit. A L- little bit. A little bit racist, maybe. A little bit. Kind of a little bit. Um <laughs> But yeah, he wanted to see the whole thing. He wanted to show that different regions were just as important to the emperor as, you know, the Italian peninsula. Sure. I don't know. He, he um, there, there's lots of other stuff about him. He had a, uh, he had a boy that he brought around with him all over the place, left his wife at home. Mm-hmm. This kid was named Antonus. I kid, he was, he was an adult, but very young Antonus. And he actually, uh, he actually drowned to death during their time in Egypt. And Hadrian was so upset that he took like days to grieve and um, ended up actually uh, uh, deifying him, which is unusual. I mean, at this point, there's a, like an imperial cult. So yeah. like each emperor is is made a god okay. uh, after their death. It was weird for Hadrian to make his, you know, youth lover a, a god at this point. Yeah. But weird. surprisingly, a lot of people were fine with it. Mm. They, they didn't mind at all. And I mean, it, it also wouldn't be, you know, ideas of sexuality at this point in time are very different to what we have now it wouldn't be that unusual for an emperor to to have a a, a boy that he brought with him but sure usually that was kind of an ex like like kind of a an exchangeable thing like it wasn't super emotionally attached yeah, it wasn't like a personal commitment or a relationship not really. not in the way that hadrian um reacted to this one it was unusual yeah also Obviously, where we're going with this is Hadrian's Wall eventually, but... Get spoilers, jeez. I can guarantee you. I Bleep can it. guarantee you that Hadrian's Wall is not the most famous thing that Hadrian built. Okay. Because the Pantheon in Rome was yeah. built by Hadrian. Wall shit. Yup. I didn't know that. Sorry, Hadrian's Wall. Man, that's way cooler. Also, they never called it Hadrian's Wall while Hadrian was alive. Yeah, but it sounds so cool. <laughs> Have you ever played Netrunner? No. It's this... It's a it's a Magic the Gathering style game, asymmetrical. But one of the best pieces of defense in that game is a uh, firewall called Hadrian's Wall, mm-hmm. which is okay. not where I first heard of it. But I was just like, oh, yeah, I remember hearing about that once. Sure. That's such a cool name. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, he, he built he rebuilt the Pantheon. The, the old one had been destroyed. But yeah, uh, yeah, the one that you could go to today. Yeah. That is a, a currently a, actually a, a Catholic basilica. Mm-hmm. Um, but was originally built as a as a shrine to all of the gods welcome to history (laughs) weird thing happens Um, all the time you if you go and see that that building was commissioned by hadrian cool yeah very very cool guy definitely read up on him gibbon who uh, is not a good historical source but is classically one of the most famous sources on roman history Mm -hmm. decline and fall of the roman empire has famously said that if you were to ask somebody when the best time to be alive was, you should point to the second century under these emperors wow. in the Roman Empire. That would be the best time to be alive. And I mean, he's writing in the 17th century. 
but at that point in time, it's kind of hard to argue with them a little bit. Yeah. At least from a, a European um, point of view, things take a pretty big dive after this. Uh oh. So, anyways. As it tends to happen with these stories, you tell me, things go well for a bit. Well, if, if things were fine the whole time, you'd come in, we'd say hi, sit down, hit record. I'd say everything was pretty peachy. We'd stop the show. <laughs> go play video games for a bit. And my listeners would be really annoyed. Like, oh, it's good to see you, man. All right, see you later. Yeah, good one. <laughs> Catch you in six months, I guess. <laughs> no, let's get back to Britain. He goes to Britain in 122 CE. Because it's part of his tour of the empire, right? And um, he takes a look at the situation. There's been this whole Pictish uprising. Um, and he's going like, this can't stand. I can't have a functioning province within this empire that is constantly a threat from like outside tribes, outside forces that aren't Roman. I need to do something to protect Roman territory from these non-Roman people. They don't want to be Roman. We can't make them be Roman. And... I don't really feel like going and killing all of them. And that's really the only solution that I'm seeing okay. to that problem. You're putting yourself in a, in a in between a rock and a hard place here, Adrian. Well, sort of. But what he decides to do is build this wall. He, I mean, and, and chances are, to be fair, this wall was probably in planning long before he actually got there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when the emperor is like, hey, maybe you should build a wall, he generally gets his name <laughs> attached to it. Yeah. They we decide, were thinking about that. Yeah, good. Do it. <laughs> yeah. They decide to construct this wall, which a lot of people actually think dis- divides current England and Scotland. That's not actually true. It's completely within England. At the west end, it's only about a kilometer south of the Scottish border. Mm-hmm. But the Scottish border goes up on an angle, and Hadrian's Wall goes kind of straight across. Yeah. Um, so by the time you get to the east side, it's uh, something like 160 kilometers away from from the scottish border so can we like start a petition for scotland to like buy that area from england <laughs> you know what i think i'm not gonna get involved in anything to do <laughs> with politics between scotland and england thank you very much what they're not complicated at all it's not like they had to s- some sort of uh, independence referendum yeah it's, it's not like there's been thousands history. of years of of bad blood uh uh insurrection uh you know yeah none terrible of that treatment happened. by oppressors nope that's never happened. Not a thing. Mm-mm. Not at all. Ugh, poor Scotland. We're not going to get into that today. That, that That's just too much stuff. But, I mean, to be fair, the roots of it do come from what's about to happen, which is that Hadrian went, okay, I'm done with all that stuff. Let's build the wall. All those guys can stay on that side of the wall. Romans aren't going to go on that side of the wall. Romans are going to stay on the south side of the wall. This is going to be Roman territory. If they want to come down to our side of the wall... They're going to have to abide by our rules or they're going to be subject to our laws. They want to stay on the north side of the wall? Fine. It's basically just saying, fine, have your space. This is ours. There's this concept in Roman culture at this point in time, in sort of the Roman mindset of limites. Uh, Limites, limits, are, Mm. are borders on the empire. It's this idea that... It's not even necessarily just a physical thing, but it's also almost a a mental idea of this side of the line, civilization. That side of the line, madness, uh, savagery. It's almost almost subhuman for someone to leave the Roman Empire and go to that side of the wall, let alone the people who spend their entire lives there. It's, It's insanity to cross these limits. 
And this actually started with... to sound Orwellian here. <laughs> yeah, I mean a little bit. But yeah, the, the, the concept of otherness in, yeah. you know, 2000 years ago Sounds is... Sounds real. Is, oh, man. Well, we talk about barbarians, right? Do you know yeah. where the word barbarian comes from? I did at one point. It's a Greek word mm-hmm. for anyone who doesn't speak Greek. Greeks believed that anyone who spoke Greek was uh, a person mm-hmm. and anyone who did not was little better than an animal. There were a number of Greek dialects, but generally you could kind of communicate with anyone else speaking a Greek dialect, albeit with some uh, difficulty if it was a different dialect. Anyone who didn't speak Greek, they had uh, an onomatopoeia for their speaking, which was bar, 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 bar. <laughs> and that's what they thought that they sounded like when they talked. That's terrible and amazing. I, you know, it's 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 blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But with way more like racist undertones it's, and well, maybe not undertones, I mean, maybe overtones. Yes and no, I guess. Yeah. I mean, there's it's it's not the word's fault in and of itself, but <laughs> no, of they're course essentially not, making fun of usage... anyone different than them or speaking differently than yeah. them by saying that that's what all of the other languages sound like. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Look at me. I'm <laughs> I'm not Greek <laughs> um, is what they would say about them. <laughs> And so barbarians are people who go bar, 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 bar. And so this concept of a barbarian was this like subhuman person who doesn't even speak Greek. And so the the concepts kind of translated throughout different cultures, obviously. And and it's it's a very similar thing when we're talking about limites, where uh, anyone on the other side of the line might as well be sitting there going bar, bar, bar and not being a human being. Yeah. Uh, Whereas on this side, it's all civil and cultural and, 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 uh, or cultured. And, this goes back all the way to uh, Caesar Augustus, who actually put legal limits on the uh, the outer boundaries of the empire, how far it could expand, because he believed that if it went any further, yeah, it would become too large and un- unwieldy. Yep. And they broke those limits eventually, but they continued to always put these these hard lines on where the empire ends. And if you are five feet over the line on the barbarian side, you can do whatever you want. And the Roman officials, the Roman military, Roman subjects will not care. It doesn't matter. It's outside of Rome. It's outside of the empire. You know, all bets are off. Not my problem. Uh, Bring it five feet on this side. They are subject to every single Roman law there is, and it will be punished to the fullest extent that they can. Mm -hmm. And I can kind of see where the at least functional benefit to this lies in that you can't constantly be fighting a shifting battle between cultures and putting expectations on people without clear communication as to what it is that's being expected. Yeah. Overextending is a real thing. It absolutely is. And this was an attempt to curb that. Yeah. And this wasn't the only place that Hadrian put limites in place either. He, he did the same in, uh, in Germany, but this one is by far his most famous one because it ends up being a physical wall. Yeah. This wall is, is actually massive i didn't realize how big it is it's it's um you know it's 117 kilometers long it's nearly the entire width of the island at that point wow there's a little bit at the east end where there isn't actually a physical wall but there's also like it's kind of like a river delta right there and so they just put in like a whole bunch of fortresses rather than a wall proper yeah but it's it's nearly the entire way they they probably could have finished it it's uh, a full three meters thick so nearly 10 feet. Yeah, that's not nothing. And it's five to six meters high, which is fairly tall. Yeah. You know, again, we're talking, you know, 
uh, 15 to 20 feet, depending on where it is along there. That's that's massive. And what's more, there's a ditch in front of it. And then behind the wall, you've got a road. It's a military road is what they call it. It's used for patrolling the outside and getting to uh, the various fortresses that are on it. And then there's another ditch in behind that. Jeez. Um, so it's defensible. serious fortifications. Every Roman mile, which is, you know, a little bit bigger than, uh, or sorry, a little bit smaller than a, a standard mile, mm-hmm. you're going to have like a mini fort. And then there's going to be like a full, like like an outpost, right? Then there's going to be a fully stocked uh, fort every five Roman miles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Roman mile, about two kilometers or so. Sure. And these are used both to like patrol the wall, like to, to keep an eye on things, and uh, used as gates between the north and the south because they weren't looking to cut off contact altogether. Yeah. But what it would allow them to do is keep track of who's coming and going. Yeah. Collect trade tariffs and taxes on things that are coming and going it's really like clamped that. down on any movement well yeah it's it, it, it was a porous border before this and they wanted to make sure that they had a handle on what was going on there yeah so the reason for having it is kind of questionable when you really think about it like it, it kind of doesn't make that much sense especially i was just were, gonna say this seems like a bit of overkill well especially when you know number one there aren't that many people up there number yeah. two they're not that much of a threat really number three the amount of economic power that they're, you know, pulling out isn't that large. Yeah, like this sounds like an expensive endeavor, mm-hmm. and the, what they're getting out of it, I'm not really seeing it. So worth it for military defense? Eh, probably mm-hmm. not. Yeah. Worth it for the whole customs and immigration thing? Like you could put up like a short wood fence. Yeah. And like, do nearly as much good. This has to be a symbol at this point. That's generally the consensus here. Yeah. Show the Picts that like like demonstrate to them what's going on here show that the emperor is capable of astounding things because i mean this is a six meter stone wall yeah like it this is, is gonna look impressive. terrifying on the other side just like whoa yep it's crazy impressive it didn't like it went up so fast like it only took a few years to go up really yeah six years <laughs> that's huge um that- that's ridiculous. And, and yeah, and I mean, they had towers in between even the outposts. Right? Yeah, exactly. So you got forts pro- built along this wall too, yeah. right? Like, so all of that gets done yeah. quick. So it's constantly patrolled. Uh, they, they're not even sure that every single fort was manned to full capacity at all times. It was probably like rotating people through. You would have to assume a wall that large just gets a little ridiculous. What it does do, though, is guarantee the, the safety of the province of Britannia yeah. because people can feel a lot more at ease knowing that this wall is in place, protecting them yeah, from no more raids. Yeah. I'm surprised you haven't brought it up yet. Uh, the whole idea of the wall in game of Thrones basically lifted exactly from Hadrian's <laughs> as wall. soon as you said, like there weren't always forts staffed. I'm like, mm, this is sounding really familiar. Yeah. George R. R. Martin heard about this. He yeah. loved it. He decided to use it. Yeah. We don't need to spend a whole lot of time on that, but yeah, it's, it's, I mean, this happens that's exactly time why I, I didn't bring it up. I was like, eh, I bet that that, Pulled some inspiration. We don't really need to get into it. Uh, well, I mean, that's that's part of what makes the, that story so timeless is that he's pulling from yeah, the from, most interesting from a timeless story. Yeah, <laughs> and it's funny because Hadrian's Wall is easily the most fa- uh, famous one. Not even twenty years later, the Antonine Wall gets built uh, about one hundred and sixty kilometers north in the Scottish Lowlands, mm-hmm. one forty two CE. So another emperor goes, yeah, we'll make one even further up there. And are they claiming the land between the two Absolutely. as Roman province mm-hmm. or territory, part of the province? It was meant as part of an attempt to 
conquer Caledonia. Like it was meant as like a first move. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, it didn't go super well. It's shorter. <laughs> like the, the length of the wall is shorter, but it actually took longer to build. Or sorry, it took 12 years to complete. By the time it was put together, they only kept it for eight more years before they had to abandon it and, and retreat back to Hadrian's Wall. Sorry, how long did it take to build? 12 years. And they kept it for eight. Eight further. Yeah, so 20 years total. Yeah, but that's not where you want that ratio to go. No, it's really not. <laughs> you want the build time to be significantly shorter than the time you use it. Yep, it's it's really not worth it. It's a, it's a shorter wall. It's a thicker wall. Uh, shorter in, in height, I mean. It's, yeah, it's um, less tall. Yeah. But, um, yeah, they couldn't hold on to it. They, uh, well, part, partly what happened there is the emperor died and everyone who was telling him that it was probably a bad idea went, all right, well, it was a bad idea. <laughs> it was a bad idea. Maybe we could, maybe we could take this opportunity, just pull it back. Adrian's wall was working real well. That was a real good wall, guys. <laughs> and the Antonine wall fell into disrepair because they just stopped using it. And so this brings us to about year 160 and we're kind of hitting another period here where for several decades we're not going to actually hear about anything that's happening on britain because things kind of tick along relatively well at least from the romans point of view and all the action happens on the continent with the uppity germans and all that (laughs) so uh, i think this is a really good spot to take another quick break and when we come back we're going to talk about uh rome's later days and how britain kind of gets pulled into all of the uh turmoil that happens there cool all right we're back on hi 101 here with phil danny hey hey and things are a little bit quiet right now in britain yep everyone's taking a nap it's because they're popping off all over the empire (laughs) it's just it gets it gets really messy i mean when you look at something as big as the the Roman Empire on like a macro level, it feels like it doesn't take that long before things start sort of start falling apart. Remember when I said uh, last episode or part, I forget how you label these <laughs> about uh, overextending. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and really what comes of that, especially in a, you know, in an ancient setting, is just the ability to like rule effectively because if your orders aren't getting to a place for a week, that's not exactly responsive. Yeah, it's just like, uh, we so might start, be in trouble. And so they start doing things like uh, appointing co-emperors. They have systems where like there's a there's like a senior emperor and a junior emperor. Really? The senior one's an Augustus and the junior one's a Caesar. And like That's when actually kind of cool. The from older a, one dies. A symbolism point of view. He moves up yeah. and then brings on a new co-emperor. At some point, you know, down the road when um, Constantine splits the empire... Uh, there's actually going to be four emperors at certain points, two at each capital. Cool. So, I mean, they're really working to figure out how to just distribute, like, systematic yeah. structure across such a large empire. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, they, they start delegating more power to the local governors because they just have to. And, like, it's just, it gets really messy. Yeah. And they do... You know, to, to their credit, they do a fairly good job of maintaining and, and delegating that power yeah. for a while. Um, I mean, like, while, nobody really figures this out for a while anyways, right? Well, I mean, and, and a lot of the ways that they figure out are based on former Roman exactly. uh, innovations, yeah. just kind of refined over Iterating time. on it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. 
but yeah, what what they also start facing is is all of these uh, outbreaks of rebellion on, uh, or not not rebellion. Rebellion rebellion implies that it's the citizens that are rising up. They're facing invasion on the yeah. German frontiers and on the on the Asian frontiers that they have to deal with because there's this funny thing that happens in uh, in Europe where the Scandinavian countries are just sort of this almost the spawn point for these various <laughs> like. Like incredibly like strong. Britannia wants a barbarian outpost eliminated. Yeah, basically. But that's the thing. You get waves and waves of these these uh, these tribes that are running away from Scandinavia because there's a new tribe there that's bigger and badder than them. Yeah. And even the first ones that are coming in are just they're they're actual threats to the Roman military, which is really yeah. interesting. And they're dealing with that stuff by trying to like take them in and Romanize them as well, but what ends up happening is that that's not a one-way process, right? And so uh, the Roman Empire itself starts becoming slightly more Germanic yeah. because of all of this influence. And meanwhile, each tribe is being driven out of the Scandinavian regions that's, like, bigger and badder than the last one. Yeah, so it's just getting worse and worse. It keeps getting worse. And yeah. so usually, like, whoever they're fighting today is running away from whoever and, yeah. and is so, like a Scandinavia threat. Scandinavia is acting like as a crucible for yes. the baddest of badass barbarians. Yes. And and so whoever they're fighting today and being like, oh these guys are the worst, they're the ones that ran away yeah. from the ones that are coming in 20 <laughs> years. Yeah. So you know they they generally they tend to get labeled under uh, the Goths. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's so many subdivisions of that where it's really similar to uh, the Celtic people that we've been talking about. Yeah, exactly. Where just a really broad label for a really big group of people. They're just calling them all Germans yeah. and everyone coming from that way is German and yeah. don't worry about it. Whereas the, the reality of that situation is much more nuanced, much more complicated. But, you know, the Picts are staying behind their wall. And the citizens of Britain uh, are just doing their thing. They're just being Roman citizens. It's all good. No one's worrying about it really that much. Until the year 180 CE, when uh, a huge force of Picts actually breaks through the wall. They managed to get through at one point. How? Uh, Sheer force, complacency on the wall. So what, like some a segment like falls into disrepair and the Picts take advantage of it or something? It's less a, it's less a physical breakthrough okay. and more of a, a, you know, one of the outposts would have fallen. I was going to say, because I mean, like, it sounds like a pretty sturdy piece of structure. Yeah. No, no, no. It's it's not as though they actually like busted through the wall. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Kool-Aid that, man style. That wall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that, uh, that wall. <laughs> that wall is formidable enough to make life pretty difficult for anyone pre-canon basically yeah it's it's 10 feet thick when does the canon come around anyways oh you're you're looking at like the 13th century yeah i thought it was like and that's even like the most basic yeah i thought that was second or second millennium stuff yeah like like they're pretty explodey at that point sure like being a canon operator (laughs) just drive the cannon up to the wall (laughs) fire it there you are more likely to die trying to fire a cannon than you are if you have a cannon pointing in your general direction brutal they they were pretty bad they were pretty bad and so i mean like the the walls itself are they're not gonna fall yeah um what happens is that those troops have been on the wall and not really having to do a whole lot for a long time nothing's happening and remember that it's a huge like it's a 
huge expense just in terms of like manpower, right? And so I they've assume, been pulling troops away from it. And I assume like, you know, it gets to the point where, okay, there's shit going on in the empire proper. Yeah. So let's send our good soldiers there and send the shit ones to the wall. Yeah. And, and the soldiers that were manning that wall were German soldiers. Yeah. And at this point in time, there's still this consideration that like Italian soldiers are like the best soldiers, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily true, but there is sort of that, that estimation of them and they're yeah. going to get the best gear, the best training and the best uh, assignments. Yeah. Everyone else kind of just gets well, put assigned out, whatever. to North Britain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, they break through and, it's such a big force that they and, and they're so taken by surprise that they actually managed to kill the, the governor of Britannia in, in, in battle. Because remember, he would actually lead right, troops. Right, of course. Which is hugely disruptive. Mm-hmm. Just massively disruptive. And so the replacement governor, um, Ulpius Marcellus, doesn't get there for another four years just because of all of the other stuff that's going on wow. on the continent. I mean, again, we're talking about a huge empire that they're having a hard time ruling, right? So it takes four years for him to actually get up there and start trying to put things back in order. Problem is that Marcellus is kind of a bad leader. Uh-oh. Not like not like a corrupt leader. No. Incompetent? Um, his men hate him. No, not even incompetent. Strict. Oh. He does not let them mess around. He will make sure that they are in like full parade marching yeah. uh, order when they're like you know, just hanging out at the wall, like not really doing anything where these men are used to just kind of chillaxing. Yeah. Yeah. More or less. They do their patrols. (laughs) The military, like soldier equivalent of chillaxing. Well, anytime you have a a military force in the field, their demeanor is going to be completely different than what it was during basic training. And it's just a fact of life. And what matters most to a commander is that they number one, follow follow orders and number two, do so effectively. As long as they're doing that, generally, sort of decorum gets ignored to some extent, as long as it's not interfering with their duties. Sure. This guy wasn't wasn't allowing that to slip. So he had to stick up his butt. A little bit. A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) To the point that the army mutinied against him. Whoa. They full-on threw a mutiny. Maybe maybe not not so much of a little stick then. (laughs) Not only is... Well, I mean, they've been used to like 40 years of nothing yeah even if he's only holding them to standards that they would have been held to on the german border they're not accustomed to that level of decorum so is that treason absolutely oh boy yep yep it's super bad except to keep keep in mind that they're holding this entire island yeah so (laughs) they're they're all they're all the military on the island yeah so basically the whole island just revolted at that point a little bit what I mean, well, at least the military really, presence did. Things aren't really that cut and dry. Okay. Really? The powers that be have two options at that point. Number one, figure out every single person he mutinied against Marcellus. Yeah. And, well, execute them. Yeah. Quote unquote, deal with them. Or handle it like a, a rational person would. Look at why they mutinied and try and figure out how to best bring him back in. Sort out this situation. Yeah. They'll probably need to make an example of some people. Of course. They're not going to just hand back, you know, all of their privileges uh, without making any sort of stink about it. But uh, it's a lot better than dealing with, you know, multiple legions of of mutineers. Yeah. They send a guy named Pertinax. 
to Britain to deal with this. He's a general at this point in time mm-hmm. uh, and a fairly successful one. They decide not, like to send in a, a ringer yeah. uh, this time. And he gets there at 192 CE. But again, he's kind of getting there being like, okay, guys, guys, let's figure out what's going on. Uh, they tried to assassinate him. Who they is, is a different question. Okay. Um, it'll, it'll be a small segment of the, of the military who are basically going like, this guy is coming to kill all of us. Maybe we should just make a stand. Yeah, here. The ones Maybe who understand that that is a possibility yeah. have decided we're not going to let it happen. It would have been a segment of the military. Yeah. There would have been a lot of people who would have been fine with Pertinax coming in and restoring some order, yeah. especially when you have Picts that are running around in the north still unchecked. Yeah. Big problems going on in Britain here, right? So at this point, they do not have control of the wall anymore? Yeah, they have some control of the wall, but not full control. Yeah. And besides, even if they had control, they've just uh, shown that the Picts can get through if they want to. Sure. Maybe some improved vigilance could help with that. But that, yeah, that bell's been rung. So no one has that much confidence in it anymore. I wouldn't if I was stationed there. Yeah. Well, we thought this was impervious, but they just busted on through anyway. Pretty much. Yeah, I don't blame them for losing some faith. Uh, Pertinax actually lived. He survived the the attempt, but he was he was just kind of left for dead and he managed to kind of make his way back to loyal forces. Jeez. Yeah, he was a he was a tough guy. I was, was going to say, tough bugger. Yeah, no kidding. And was about to kind of, you know, rally and start taking care of things. Except that the current emperor, Commodus, died. And Pertinax was named in his will as his successor. Oh, good. Funny thing about that will, though, was that it didn't really look much like Commodus's writing. Mm-hmm. In fact, it looked an awful lot like... Well, the, the funny thing about it was that it was brought forward by a member of the Praetorian Guard. Um, the Praetorian Guard was like a, an elite force um, within the uh, Roman military. Okay. They were originally like personal bodyguards for Caesar Augustus, mm-hmm. but it kind of morphed into this. Uh, it, they were this own, their own um, kind of political entity. And there were a number of times where when it was unsure who would be the next emperor, they just straight up nominated somebody. Yeah. Yeah, they they made Pertinax Emperor. They thought that he would be a really good choice. Okay. Mostly because they thought that they would be able to manipulate him into doing what they wanted him to do. Yeah. As I said, this isn't new for the Praetorian Guard. They've done that a number of other times. Political entity. <laughs> See, the funny thing about it, though, is that Pertinax wasn't quite as on the take as they thought he was. Mm-hmm. Because they went to Pertinax and they said, so, we uh, made Jamper. How about you uh, How about you scratch our back now? And he said, no, I'm not paying you anything. In fact, I think I'm going to put in some uh, reforms in the Praetorian Guard. <laughs> uh, so Pertinax died in 193. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, he was assassinated. Overplayed his hand a bit. Well, in, I, I think... Yeah, maybe, but I think also the Praetorian Guard um, misjudged the kind of man that they were putting on the throne. Yeah. And this is sort of a die a hero sort of scenario. Sounds like it. And the problem there is that, you know, there had already been a bit of a vacuum with Commodus, but Pertinax seemed like a pretty clear winner. Mm-hmm. And really what they had done, what the Praetorian Guard had done by nominating him was uh, try and back the most obvious horse. Yeah. And try and get them on, get, get them under their thumb. Uh, and it blown up in their faces. This time, it wasn't nearly as clear as to who should succeed as emperor. There were two main forerunners. One 
named Claudius Albinus, who is the current new governor of Britain, and Septimus Severus. And really what happened was there, there was actually a third contender in the, in the East, and the two of them teamed up to take him out. But it was pretty clear that Septimus Severus was a pretty ambitious guy. Yeah. And Albinus decided very early on that he just... Didn't want the competition? Well, he had a pretty good feeling that he wasn't going to be kept around as an ally for that long. Yeah. And so he decided to make a bit of a preemptive strike on Severus's forces. So he took, he took as many troops as he could to the continent. But here's the thing. There's this Pictish uprising in the north that hasn't been completely figured out. And this is an imperial province, meaning that it needs to be manned by a, a military presence at all times. Yep. So there are three perfectly good legions there that he has to leave in Britannia. Uh-oh. <laughs> so he can only take so many soldiers with him, which isn't a lot. Other yeah. than that, he kind of relies on mercenaries, some political supporters, things like that. And yeah, he goes after Severus, but uh, he was he was defeated pretty badly. Yeah. Didn't think this was going to go well. Which kind of shows people that, like, you, know, you can't really strike out from Britain. There's a problem with striking out from Britain in that while it seems pretty secure, it's only secure while you have a military force sitting there. Yeah. You can't withdraw it. It is, even though it's an island, it is like perpetually a frontier province. Yeah. You can't treat it as anything differently until such time that you could defeat the entire island yeah. and, and demilitarize, demilitarize the entire thing. And that's not in the cards right now. It's really, really not. But Severus, who, who had you know just won this, also is a pretty quick study. I mean, he became emperor because he was smart and and capable, not just because of dumb luck. Yeah, took out two of his competitors. But the first thing that he does is divide Britannia into two provinces, superior and inferior. And he decides to break up the legions that are on the island, leave two in the north, one in the south, and give the island two governors. Because he's worried that somebody will be ambitious enough. Because, frankly, this is probably what he would have done himself. Somebody would be ambitious enough to abandon the island and bring all three legions. Mm -hmm. Say, screw all those uh, citizens on the island. I'm bringing everyone across to try and make a go of becoming emperor. Yeah. And because he said, you know, ah, I would probably do that myself. He wanted to make sure that nobody else would be able to do it. Makes sense. Yep. Now you have to have some, they'd have to basically cooperate and yes. then somehow divide well that's the thing if the somebody spoils. rebelled if somebody rebelled on the on the island they would have another governor there on the island that would be able to take care of them yeah. uh, at least for enough time for other troops to arrive and support them so does inferior have the same sort of connotation at this point as it does now like uh this is above and below yeah that's what i figured yeah yeah so it's 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 not about qualitative yeah evaluation it's just descriptive just descriptive but the other thing that this, is, that this does is rec recognizes the relative peace of the South. So it can kind of almost partially demilitarize the South because it's not really where the problems are anymore. These people yeah. have been Romanized for a hundred years now. They're not, you know, you're not looking for another Boudicca at this point. Your main threat is coming from uh, above the wall. Yeah. Uh, so th that recognizes sort of the, the stages in which it's becoming Romanized, right? 
So the other thing that Severus does is he decides to move the line back up to the Antonine Wall. Mm. So sometimes it's actually called the Severin Wall as well. He didn't build it. He just kind of rebuilt it. So he did some repairs. And he held it for a little while, but eventually decided that it really wasn't worth holding um, and retreated again back to the the Hadrian's Wall. It seems to be kind of the... Better of the two walls. Well, it, it seemed to end up being kind of a natural border. It was easier to hold. Yeah. Partially because it was farther away from the people that they were trying to hold it against. <laughs> I was just going to say. Which sounds like an obvious statement, but... A little straightforward. You give them some room, they're a little less likely to, to bristle against you, right? Yeah. After that's, that civil war, things get a little bit quiet again. At least for Britain. And this is kind of why it's useful to look at just Britannia. Because we can skip swaths of decades of unrest and, and kind of go, not a whole lot happened, at least for Britain. Yeah. And leave it alone. It was, you know, somewhat affected by inflation issues. The Roman Empire was never really that good with money. Uh, it didn't really understand inflation as, like, an economic concept. Really? Because I understood it when I was, like, 12. But I guess the education system's come pretty far. Yeah. Yeah. And people have, you know, come up with the theory of inflation. <laughs> like, I mean, it, it seems like a simple theory, sure, but... It's one thing to realize that your money is being devalued. It's another thing to know what to do about it. That's fair. And so there were constantly like monetary reforms, yeah. which were trying to fix the inflation problem. But in reality, we're actually making life for the average person much more difficult. Great. Yeah. Those are the so, best kind of government solutions. Uh, yeah, well, and again, <laughs> they didn't know they had no better solution. Literally yeah. none. They had also kind of resorted to paying off the Picts for peace, which seemed to work fairly well. Yep. It's a lot cheaper than you know, warfare. Makes sense. No, it it works out pretty well. Yeah. We're going to skip ahead until uh, the year 259, where there's a bunch of other unrest down on the continent. And there's kind of a split in the empire, breaking up various regions. Mm -hmm. And uh, kind of accidentally, Britannia ends up in what's known as the Gallic Empire, based on the word Gaul, which is going to be France, right? Yep. Um, so it's not technically part of like the main Roman Empire between about 259 and 274. It didn't really like it didn't really like affect a whole lot though. Cuz like the people they were they were they were trading with were basically the same people. Yeah. And their economy didn't really change and someone just pl- plastered a under new management sign. Almost literally. Almost yeah. literally. They got coins with a new dude's face on it. Yeah. And they were like, "Okay, well, I guess this is the emperor now. Still worth <laughs> You know, slightly less than it was last year. (laughs) (laughs) This, this, yeah, this whole Gallic Empire was was a result of an attempted rebellion by a guy named Posthumus. The Emperor Aurelian was the one who kind of, yeah, he laid the smack down on him. And uh, no more Gallic Empire. (laughs) Britannia became back uh, part of the Roman Empire again. Again, very little effect for them, though. Yeah. Right. Well, they're they're far removed from it too, right? Like they, there's literally a body of body of water separating them. That English Channel is a pretty effective buffer. Yeah, you're also getting a lot of problems with these these Germanic tribes ripping through at this point, right? And the they had decided to kind of treat the boundaries a little bit differently in 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 the east than they had uh, they had before, where they were kind of keeping a hard line. Mm-hmm. They had decided to let it become a little bit more porous and worry more about like fortifying individual settlements and kind of letting the barbarians burn themselves out yeah rather than like building walls in the middle of nowhere and and you know dying on them yeah 
even as much pro uh, even as much trouble as those barbarians were giving people on the continent again not a whole lot of trouble uh in britain for the most part at least they are going to start seeing some saxon raiders uh, around 280 or so uh the saxons are again uh german and they'll be coming from sort of where the netherlands or denmark are now mm-hmm. that northern coast um that's a little bit further east than france and belgium um they're going to be coming from there and they're going to be raiding along the the british coasts and they're going to start uh the romans will start building up fortifications along the south coast of britain yeah um both to uh defend against these saxons and to defend against piracy which starts becoming really bad in this period uh anytime there's that level of military unrest people will turn to raiding to support themselves and you know it's it's all fairly sensible it follows yeah absolutely the next really exciting thing that we get to talk about is uh in 286 ce a guy named uh carousius who's the commander of the entire Britannic fleet, mm-hmm. learns, you know, through a, through a spy, that he's, that the emperor has just issued an order of execution against him. Why? Oh, um, because he was embezzling government funds and also aiding and betting uh, Saxon pirates. Was he? Yep. Oh, Why? <laughs> because uh, it was making him lots of money. Oh, fair like, enough. This is not an unwarranted execution <laughs> order. He just found out that it was coming. <laughs> you totally led me along there, you jerk. <laughs> that may also have been intentional. Yeah, I imagine as much. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, hey, I've got an entire fleet. I'm the emperor of the Britannic Empire now. This is my empire. Uh, he also took a couple of places in like northern Gaul because he did have that fleet to help him out. Yep, sure. And I mean, there was a lot of cultural bleed between northern France and uh, or Gaul in this case, and uh, and the island. I mean, you know, when they talk about the region of France that's uh, that's known as Brittany, yeah, that's named after the Britons because they were moving across the channel in the other direction too. Yep, uh, and establishing settlements there. Um, and I mean, go far enough back, and those people are you know culturally very similar to them they were all celtic originally right yep makes a lot of sense so yeah the britannic empire uh existed between uh 286 and 296 took them 10 years to uh, you know what as far as these like temporary bullshit empires go yeah not a terrible lifespan no it's not bad and crassius was um you know he did add 10 years to his life i suppose yeah sure i don't know bad job establishing an empire but <laughs> but i mean it also de- it also de- uh demonstrates how difficult it is to do anything about someone that's on the island right like yeah. it's fairly well uh defended it's it's hard to land ships on on british soil lest we forget how hard it was for julius caesar to get up there in the first place yeah and i mean that's been that's been a, a constant throughout british history i mean the last time any enemies landed on British soil was, I believe, during the Napoleonic Wars when some uh, French troopers got lost, basically, and washed <laughs> up on the, the shore of Wales. <laughs> they, they celebrate it in a, in a little village uh, called Fishguard there. Oh, really? Yeah, because it was like a little fishing village where they washed up <laughs> and, they, and they beat up these French soldiers. I mean, they probably killed them, but yeah, I mean, probably. I, yeah, yeah, it's a big thing for them. It's really hard. It's it's really really difficult, and 
uh, it just goes to show how having even a little bit of coastal defense and even a little bit of uh, a navy can go a long way towards defending an island empire. Around 300 CE, uh, an emperor named Diocletian comes along and he puts into place a bunch of reforms in terms of administration. It's a whole bunch of really boring stuff, but essentially what he's doing is delegating power to provinces. He makes provinces a little bit smaller and he makes the governors much more personally accountable to the things that happen within their provinces. And these reforms are actually eventually going to lead to sort of the political landscape of post-Roman Europe and, you know, eventually lead into things like the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah. Right. Like the political divisions that go into place under under these reforms are very, very long lasting. Some of these borders still stand in various forms today. But Britain itself ends up split into four provinces. We're actually not entirely sure where exactly these four provinces are because records start getting really muddy around this point in time in the Roman Empire. They're not as good at keeping them. I guess would be the best explanation for this. That tracks, um, yeah. <laughs> a lot of what we have to go on in terms of where these provinces are are actually like um, diocesan and records for these areas uh, because it's like the local governors that are talking about where their provinces are and they're doing it like through description in words rather than like actually anyone going out and surveying like some maps. Yeah. Right? So it makes it a little bit fuzzy. But I mean, by... 300 or so when these reforms go into place things have gotten so bad on the continent and britain has become such a non-priority that a lot of the influence of the actual roman empire of the emperor of the uh, culture of the empire is really starting to slip away in britain especially with like these saxon raids that are starting to kind of cause some trouble and you start seeing a, a reversal of the whole romanization process you get like deurbanization, so people start moving out of the the urban centers and mm-hmm. going back to sort of more pastoral ways of life, because frankly, it's a little bit safer. Cities are nice, but make they're good also, targets for raiding. Yeah, they're great targets. And as we said uh, very very early on in this topic in the in the first half, there's nowhere you want to be less in the world than a city that's being sacked. Yeah. So it's kind of understandable. The population also starts dropping, partially because of people moving out of Britain, or Britannia, I should say, uh, partially because of these raids that are happening. Raids Um, aren't going to go do much for your population count. It's become less safe, right? Like the Saxons are doing the one thing that, you know, Britannians thought, or Britons thought that they were safe from, namely bringing Germanic raiders, you know, into their homes. Yeah. And in case anyone has ever heard of the word Anglo-Saxon, yeah, this, this is, exactly is where they where come from. from. Yeah, that, that's a that's an amalgamation of the the Saxons Angles. along with a, a tribe called the Angles, as well as a tribe called the Jutes, which uh, did not get included in the name, yeah. but uh, had a had a strong influence on that culture eventually. Um, when around does that start to show up? By the way, Anglo-Saxon you know? culture. Yeah, this is where we're kind of starting. That's where I thought. Um, but this is the start of a very slow process. It's not like one day somebody shows up and says, ha we're the Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> of course, it's going to be eventual. The same thing is how like the the Roman uh, culture sort of built up and declined. It mm-hmm. takes a while, right, exactly. for these things to happen. And I mean, there's already a little bit of Germanization of the you know British culture at this point because of all of the 
uh, German people immigrating legally as Romans yeah. to the island and bringing aspects of their culture along with them. The military is no longer like exclusively uh, Italian at this point. They realize that they have to include uh, soldiers from other ethnic groups in order to maintain any sort of uh, reasonably sized military. Yes. Remember the sub theme of this week's episode? (laughs) Overextending. Yeah, exactly. And so a lot of the soldiers that are coming in are also German themselves. Or uh, Spanish is quite common as well. Um, And you get a little bit of movement from the eastern provinces, but not nearly as much. I Mm -hmm. mean, there's there's kind of a hard divide at this point in time. You don't get uh, people moving all the way from Anatolia into Britain. That would be a little too much of a move uh, to make. If it happened, it would be rare. They could legally, but no one would. Impractical even. Yeah, absolutely. And it gets to the point, this whole uh, de-urbanization thing, where they stop building any public works at all. And they actually start repurposing old buildings for new purposes, including things like uh, taking old government buildings and turning them into storehouses. Wow. Which was probably done by like with the approval of of the uh, the governors there because it's the, just practical given the situation they found themselves in exactly and and slowly they stop hearing from Rome they hear less and less from them one of the things we were talking about earlier was uh, these heat maps of Roman coins right mm-hmm. no new Roman coins seem to have entered the British island uh, after 407 wow so yeah basically they spent the entire fourth century so you know, 300 through 400, um, you know, losing contact with the continent, being attacked by raiders, losing population to this, possibly moving off the island because they feel less safe and feel like they might have a bit better chance on the continent, which, yeah, is getting more raiders, but is also a lot bigger. Yeah. Um, you could probably even get further away from the source of the raiding mm-hmm. with the continent being, you know, wider and taller. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, eventually, you know, these these Germanic tribes, the Goths mainly, uh, will make their way all the way into Spain. They go, they go all the way through Europe. It's They're constantly driven by the people right behind them, as yeah. we said earlier. And yeah, there's nowhere really that safe. Brutal. But the amazing thing about the fact that we're essentially about, to, like we're, we're currently skipping an entire century, mm-hmm. is that the reason that we're skipping it is that not, like so much stuff was happening other places that no yeah. one was really paying attention to Britain. You just kind of falls apart for a hundred years yeah think about that that's insane it's a long time like do i have info yeah is any of it even remotely interesting enough to talk about here no they just kind of do their thing and like slowly atrophy yeah which is which is amazing so yeah as i was saying by 407 there are no new roman coins entering britannia by 430 it looks like they may have abandoned the use of Roman currency altogether. Wow. Just not worth anything to anyone. It's no longer fiat currency. Crazy. So essentially reverting to a trade-based economy. I was just going to say they go back to trade. More or less, yeah. Industry, they, they've stopped receiving British or uh, uh, Roman goods, essentially. They've, they've started bringing more and more production local yeah. and not relying on the continent anymore. Hence the storehouses, I assume. Yep. Gotta have somewhere to put your stuff. Yep. In 446, there is a massive push by the Saxon invaders. And the governor sends word to the current emperor, Aetius. We're under attack. We need military support. 
Not only does he not send any troops, but they never send an answer. Wow. This is known as the groans of the Britons. Mm -hmm. And there's a number of places you could kind of point to as when Roman Britannia ends. I think this is the best one because honestly, how could you even call yourself in control of a a territory if you aren't able to defend it militarily? You can't even acknowledge that it's in trouble. Mm -hmm. During this push, the Saxons will actually reach the west coast of the island. Yeah. So covering the whole island. Mm -hmm. So simultaneously, the Roman Empire does nothing to help them. And uh, the Saxons more or less take over. I mean, it's not quite that simple. There's still yeah. going to be quite a bit of work that they do to uh, to take over the islands. But really, this is the beginning of uh, Anglo-Saxon culture in post-Roman Britain and the end of, of Roman influence. I, I can't think of a better place to point to than that. It's been fading for a long time, but... yeah. That's kind of like a pretty clear stopping point. It's, it's just, a nail in the coffin. Yeah, for it's sure. like Rome's not coming to help you, and the Saxons have literally crossed your entire island. Yep. And so, really, that's the point where I, I don't think you could draw Britain on a map of the Roman Empire anymore. Wow. So, the population does what it will do in a lot of different frontier pro- uh, provinces of the, uh, the Roman Empire, it'll turn to the governor as the actual leader rather than just a liaison between this province and the uh, the Imperials. Mm-hmm. They'll slowly begin to revert to a pre-Roman, or to some pre-Roman tendencies, specifically uh, a little bit more uh, Celtic language comes back into standard use. But in this case, you're also going to see a lot more Saxon language come into use. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of where you start getting proto-Old English, because... Old English has a little bit of Latin in it. It's got from, you know, leftover from this this uh, Britannian or this Britain Latin. Yeah. And, you know, in the future influenced heavily by French. But it's mainly a, a Germanic language and that's been brought to the island by the Saxons. Yep. So while you have holdouts of Celtic language, you know, especially in, in Wales, Scotland, Ireland, yep. you're going to get a lot more Germanic language. And they will stop depending on any outside influences for support for their economy uh, for any of that and and become a, a more autonomous nation for it. And uh, yeah, like I said, I think that's probably the best place to stop. If we felt like talking about King Arthur, this is usually when <laughs> people who believe he might have been based on a historical figure. I was just going to say. This is about when they think he might have existed. This is ripe time for formation of a nation, right? So This is, this is, this is like a straight up 50-50 for historians on whether or not there was a historical Arthur. It would be cool if there was, but the fact that it would be cool if there was makes me think there probably wasn't. I think the more important thing about the Arthurian legends is that it says a lot more about um, the creation of a British identity than it does about an actual historical thing that happened. That's the thing about people that get argued about their historicity. (laughs) Their historicity? Yeah, whether or not they actually existed. That's... It's a real word. I promise you. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You've thrown me off completely. I'm sorry. It's a, it's a real word. I, I, I find in general, it's it's if you're arguing about whether or not they existed, probably the 
uh, how true it is that they existed or not is like the least yeah. interesting part. I feel like you're missing them. the point. Yeah. Something happened at that time to create this legend and what was going on is probably the important thing. Sure. And I mean, you know, the, the oldest, the oldest versions of King Arthur are going to be coming out of around this time. So, you know, maybe, maybe he was based on the, the prevailing theory is that he's based on uh, a Britain King who was fighting against the Saxons. Okay. There are other theories that he was actually like a Roman governor uh, that was really yeah, but but after losing contact with the sure with the um, uh, with the continent, uh, that this was like uh, you know the sort of unification of Britain was sort of his attempt to deal with the new political reality of a post-Roman world. Makes sense, but you know, as we said, I, I don't know if it necessarily matters. I can guarantee you that the, if there was a real King Arthur, he was nothing like Thomas Mallory wrote him. So, you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? I know what you mean. But like the the important part of Arthurian legend to me from in the historical context, not the entertainment context, is that it was about like a nation, like the the formation of a British identity. Sure. That sort of everything amalgamating. Yep. And that's the important part. It's like, yeah, that happened. We yep. can see it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Britain exists. Well, there's this funny thing that happens with British uh, history. I think especially if you're not from Britain. I mean, they do a pretty good job of teaching their own history. There's a lot of history to teach. But you know that it was part of the Roman Empire for a while. And then dot, dot, dot. And then (laughs) in 1066, Battle of Hastings. And that's where all the kings and queens start. And it kind of almost feels like those are two completely different places. Yeah. And um, nothing before 1066 matters. And even getting from Caesar invading Britain to the end of the British Empire kind of gets real hazy at the end there. Yeah. And that's not true. There's absolutely a continuum. There's absolutely um, changing social forces behind all of this stuff, even if we don't have a good record of all of the political uh, goings on that happened there. Modern English is born, at least it's in its infancy, there mm-hmm. right because like when the saxons get there that's kind of when it starts essentially yeah i i mean shortly thereafter yeah they as they become the prominent cultural group in it's Britain, like the precursor to the precursor right yes, like without the is... saxons the angles and the saxons don't and the what was the other one the jutes that their their cultures don't combine yeah. and create that proto-english that's right so it's important yep that's that is where old english is born you're right yeah it'll take It'll take a few decades, <laughs> but uh, it, it'll get there not that long after where we're talking about. Well, we skipped an entire century, so a decade is nothing. But that was also a century of a very Romanized kind of... That's um, true. If it was exciting, not well documented. So, so here's here's my big question. Sure. Is Hadrian's Wall still standing? Sections. And can, you can visit it? Absolutely. You can walk in. There's an entire path that runs the like the entire length of Hadrian's Wall. That's pretty cool. If you wanted to, you could spend a couple of days walking uh, the entire length of it. Well, it sounds like there's a new thing added to my travel destinations because I literally didn't know it was still standing. Yeah, it's a, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. That's a lot awesome. of it, you're not going to find any sections that are six meters tall. Of course. Because if you are a farmer... And you need to buy uh, to build uh, the foundation for a new sheep barn. Yeah. 
Why not um, use this wall? And there's a giant wall with perfectly cut stones a mile away. Yeah. Or you could like go and cut your own stones or build it on dirt. You bet you're going to go steal some cut stones. Yeah. So it's been it's been cannibalized for for centuries and centuries. But yeah, there are absolutely still sections that are standing. That's super uh, cool. Not high, but you can, as I said, you can you can walk the entire length. It's a long walk. <laughs> yeah. Can take you a few days. But... Cross an island. <laughs> But it would be an absolutely gorgeous walk, too. I bet. So, yeah, it's a, not a bad one to add to the bucket list, that's for sure. It's going on there. Cool. Well, anything else about the the Romans in Britain that you uh, you wanted to know? Oh, that was pretty cool, man. Oh. Yeah, I enjoyed doing this one. Like I said, it's a lot of fun to do uh, ancient history once in a while. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, really glad to have you on, as always. And, uh, Pleasure glad to, to be have you here. Back soon. Yep, six months from now. Sounds good. <laughs> The gradual collapse of communication from the imperial throne, the invasion from outside forces, and the necessary localization of government in Britain was typical for the end of the Western Roman Empire. Britain was earlier than most, but it was also on the outskirts. Britain had been a Roman province for over 400 years, and archaeologists are to this day finding further evidence of Roman influence on the island. And I mean that literally. There was just an announcement the other day about using lasers to find old Roman roads. It's very exciting. Next time on HI101, we're going to talk about the history of surgery. The first episode will be up on March 1st. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI 101.